Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a sermon series right now called Signs of the Kingdom, where we're taking a look at the seven miraculous signs that Jesus gave in the book of John. What we're learning is that when Jesus performs a miracle, it's never just a miracle. There's always something deeper for us to learn about who God is and about who we are. After all, that's what signs do. They communicate a message. Our prayer is that this sermon will help you know what God is saying to you today. Feel free to reach out to us by emailing hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Now, here's this week's teaching. Good morning. Today's scripture comes from the ninth chapter of John, verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible to follow along in, just raise a hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. But others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Thank you, Ivy. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming to Table Church and worshiping with us this morning. It's wonderful to have you here on this Palm Sunday where we remember Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, which, of course, by Friday would not be so triumphant anymore as he would be arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. It's Holy Week, as Megan said, and uh, here at Table Church we have a tradition of having a Good Friday service I rather think that a Good Friday service is kind of a prerequisite to Easter. I don't think we should rush right into the glory of resurrection before also reflecting on the somberness of crucifixion. I think that it's important for us to remember before we get to Easter why Jesus died. He died for our sins. And that's what we're going to do at our Good Friday service. I invite you to come. It's right here at 6 o'clock on Friday. There will be nursery available 0 to 2. There won't be preschool or elementary age Uh, ministries available for that service, but it will be a shorter service. And so I think that, um, well, hopefully the kids will be able to do okay uh, in the service as well of busy bags and that kind of thing like usual. So be sure to mark it in your calendars now, six o'clock right here, uh, Good Friday service. Hope to see you there. As I looked at the passage that we are looking at today that you just heard Ivy read, Um, A sermon almost immediately jumped off the page at me. Sometimes I have to wrestle with the texts to try to figure out exactly what I'm supposed to talk about. But in this particular instance, something kind of jumped out at me right away. But I'm a little tentative about it because it happens to be a hard subject. And it's a subject that um, I've been meaning to talk about here at Table Church because it's something that many people in this room, I think, are going to relate to. Um. But it could be a little hard, I don't know. Because today, I want to see what this passage has to tell us about church hurt, church pain, church trauma, whatever you want to call it. I don't know why, but almost since the beginning of Table Church, there's just been a remarkable number of people that have 
made a home here that have had some sort of difficult, sometimes very heartbreaking uh, story of, of church pain. And um, I've been able to hear a number of your stories since you started coming to Table Church. And I just want to say, first of all, that I'm humbled that you would make Table Church your home even after having gone through some of those things. But also, I want to say how sorry I am on behalf of pastors and church leaders that it sometimes can go very badly. And that's an unfortunate thing for sure. I hope that the message today can be a source of healing and hope for those of you who have maybe endured that kind of thing. And so to that end, I want to be clear about what this message is not supposed to be. First, this message is not supposed to be about pulling emotional or manipulative levers. I know that for some people here, this is a sensitive area, a sensitive topic. I'm not at all trying to dredge up old wounds or rip scabs off or anything like that. None of that's the goal. Rather, I hope that it'll be nothing but healing and hope that comes out of this. The second thing this message is not, is it's not an attempt to insert myself or table church in as the solution to to all of this. Um, I'll be the first to admit that I think we do take seriously the call to invite people to the way of Jesus, Uh, but we're far from perfect. I'm far from perfect. And um, so we're definitely not like the godsend, you know, like God's perfect church or anything like that. We're definitely not. My goal here is simply to be honest about some of the things that we see happen at the hands of religious leaders and institutions sometimes. That's very much revealed in our text today. We're going to look at it. We're going to realize how clearly that is shown. And it's also, in fact, it's mostly ultimately about seeing what Jesus can do, how he can heal us through his radical love and grace. Bottom line, I want this message to point us to Jesus in everything. Uh, Church-related trauma can look different ways. It can be um, being ostracized from a community that you're no longer a part of because you did something you didn't like, they didn't like. It can mean getting worn to the ground, trying to meet the demands of a narcissistic leader. It can mean being made to feel like you're outside of the truth unless you're associated with that particular community. It can mean being pressured to keep silent about something that you think is wrong simply to protect the reputation of the church or the leader. Sometimes it's learning that someone you loved and respected has not lived out the values that they themselves have preached. And I know how that feels. Church hurt can be caused by these things and many more. Church-related pain seems unique sometimes because It's not simply a matter of people doing bad things. It's a matter of people who supposedly represent God doing bad things. And that adds a whole new layer of complexity to the situation. We're in a series called Signs. We're looking at the seven miraculous signs in the book of John. And the sign that we're learning about today uh, applies well to this topic. Now, remember, as we've learned throughout this series, a sign is never just about the miracle that Jesus performs. It's not just about the fact that Jesus is powerful enough to heal a blind man. That's not all we're supposed to learn. Obviously, that's true, but that's not all there is. There's always a a message underneath the miracle for us. And I believe that this text has a lot to say about some of the challenges and abuses and nasty stuff that we sometimes encounter when we're in a church like this. And I think it has a lot to say about Jesus' power to heal those wounds. So here's my sermon in a sentence. This is everything I want you to walk away with right here. Jesus' truth and love outshines the darkness of toxic lies and leaders. Jesus' truth and love outshines the darkness of toxic lies and leaders. 
Now, we, I only had Ivy read part of the passage today because this particular story we're looking at stretches across the whole chapter of John chapter 9. So it, it's kind of a long one. We'd have been reading, we'd still be going right now probably if we read the whole thing. Um, so we're going to kind of hop around in it, but I encourage you to, to look through the scriptures with me. Have your Bible open. I'll be sure to give you the passage I'm looking at each time. But what we're going to find is that there's several patterns that we see pop out that sometimes happens in churches. Sometimes nasty stuff that happens in churches. We run right into one right away. It's the very second verse. And, but the, here's, here's what we hear. This is, here's the pattern. This is the message. Maybe you've heard this before. It's your fault. It's your fault. Verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The blind man in our story, see, has, he's been given one message his entire life. It's your fault. The assumption at the time was that blindness like his must be the fault of, of him or his parents. Like it's because you sinned. God's punishing you by making you blind. Jesus, however, disagrees. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Now, the fact that Jesus had to even say that is, it just demonstrates how difficult it is for us to get this particular toxic theology out of our heads sometimes. Because these people who were saying it, they had access to the book of Job. They would have read the book of Job before. And the book of Job talks about this as well. In the book of Job, Job suffers immensely. He's got a horrible affliction. And his friends, they come to counsel him. And you know what they tell him to do? They say, Job, you just have to repent. Repent of your sin. That's why this is happening, because, because of some sin. Job, it's your fault. But throughout the book, Job maintains his innocence. He says, no, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And he maintains that throughout the whole book. It's the same kind of theology at work in our passage here today. God rejects what Job's friends say. Listen, the book of Job is not easy to interpret. There's all sorts of mysteries that it kind of leaves dangling. But this part is clear. Job's friends are wrong. God's very clear about that in the book of Job. And similarly, Jesus rejects the assumption that this man was blind because of sin. It wasn't his fault. Now, I want to be clear. Sometimes things are my fault. <laughs> uh, Sin does have consequences. If I put my hand on a hot stove, my hand will get burned. That's clear. But what we see here is an example of, I don't know, shaming somebody over something they couldn't control. And what that inevitably leads to is there's this division between, you know, the holy ones and the not holy ones. And the not holy ones happen to be very obvious, right? Because they have some sort of external affliction in this particular case. And soon those who are on the bottom need those who are on the top in order to access God. It's becomes a way of control in a way. I once knew a couple who, whose daughter had severe disabilities, was born with severe disabilities, and that their, their church, they had lots of time of prayer for their daughter, that God would heal her. And they were given a consistent message each time. Look, you just need to have more faith. You just need to have more faith, and then your daughter will be healed. Look, I know the Bible verses that make it sound that way too. Like Bible verses that say that. I happen to think that we need to understand them a little bit differently than sometimes we do. But that was the, the message that was given to them consistently. Which, you know, eventually, as their daughter was not healed, could only lead them to one conclusion. It's our fault. We just, we just didn't have enough faith. We, we did this to our daughter. And it was very painful for them. 
Listen, here's the truth. Jesus is in the business of redemption, not retribution. Jesus came to save us from our sins, not to stick us with them, you know? Obviously, we make choices in life, they have consequences, but that doesn't lead us to believing in this God of retribution that we see happening in this kind of teaching. It can be too easily used to control people. So that's the first pattern. It's your fault. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. Using God as leverage. Jesus heals this blind man and it explodes into controversy. The religious leaders of the Pharisees, they corner this man and they demand answers from him. They say, who healed you? They couldn't believe that Jesus had healed him because Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath. And so they try to shed doubt on this man's story. In fact, they start to question if he was ever blind in the first place. They call the man's parents in just to get testimony from them. Parents are scared of the Pharisees, so they don't say a whole lot. This means the Pharisees have to corner the man a second time. They bring him in, verse 24. A second time, they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Now, do you notice, notice, it's subtle. Do you see what they did there? Give glory to God by telling the truth. Translation, give glory to God by telling us what we want to hear. Because, you know, if you only have one response you're willing to entertain, then you're not really looking for truth. You're looking for something specific, aren't you? Now, there's lots of ways we see this kind of thing today. It's really not difficult. It's a pretty simple move, actually. If a leader can just, you know, pair God's will with whatever it is they want to do, then if anyone's against the thing that they want to do, then they're also against God. Now, There's always a caveat. Sometimes I think it is God's will for a church to start this program or to buy this property or whatever number of things there could be that a a leader might want to try to share. I happen to think that, yes, churches do at least sometimes do God's will. I've kind of staked some things on that in my life, and I think it still happens. I really do. But here's the problem. The problem is when church leaders are more interested in declaring God's will than in discerning God's will. There's a theologian named Jeff Holsclaw, and he describes the difference between declaring God's will and discerning God's will. He says the culture of declaring God's will is this kind of strict structure where you know, God's will is communicated in one direction from the top down. And in this kind of culture, only some people have the gifts that are necessary for hearing God, and they have to kind of rely on the people that that don't have those gifts. I once sat in a seminar. I was at a church conference. It was like a breakout session. I sat in a seminar. And um, the church that was hosting, it was a very large, successful church. And so their executive pastor, who's usually kind of the number two person in a big church like that, their executive pastor comes to lead the seminar, and what he's doing, he's going to just kind of give us a breakdown of the behind the scenes of this particular church, how they work, how they operate, that kind of thing. And so we were all pretty interested to see, how does this church work? And so he got a whiteboard, and he wrote the word God at the top, and then right below God, he wrote the name of the lead pastor, and then right below the lead pastor, he wrote congregation. And he drew a line from God to the lead pastor to the congregation. And of course the implication is obvious. And, 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 and he would go on to explain, you see, we believe that God has appointed this guy, our lead pastor, for this time as our leader. My job is to protect our lead pastor because he's God's man. He's the one who gives us the word. Now as a young pastor, I'm watching this happen and let's just say my eyes 
eyebrows were very raised um, as I saw this unfold. Uh, and I remember thinking, I'm pretty sure the New Testament, First Timothy, says something about there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But what's going on here? It's, you know, on the surface, it kind of makes sense. Okay, I mean, God does appoint, does, God does raise up leaders, God does speak to leaders and stuff like that all through the Bible. Although I think in the New Testament, you kind of start to see a little bit more of this communal discernment process happen than what you often see in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, okay, you have this kind of pattern in Scripture often. But what this does is it creates a situation where there's a monopoly on God's will. If only one person can know what it is, and there's kind of a monopoly on discerning God's will. But listen, the New Testament makes it clear that that's not how it ought to be. When Jesus died, we learned that the veil in the temple was torn, which means that now we all kind of have access to God, right? Not just a select few anymore. Jeff Holsquaw goes on to describe not just a culture of declaring God's will, but also a culture of discerning God's will. A culture of discernment involves what he calls the three witnesses. There's the witness of the servants, the witness of the spirit, and the witness of scriptures. The witness of the servants is, hey, has a body, have multiple people come around to discern this? The witness of the spirit, does the body of Christ sense the spirit's prompting and leading in this? And then the the witness of scripture, have we searched the scriptures? And does it agree with where we're going? Those are the three witnesses that he talks about. Because God will not be used as leverage. As a leader, I don't get to say, well, hey, God told me and only me something, and I have you know, some sort of privileged position in order to know it. No, actually, in, in my heart, I, I want to know that other people are resonating with it too before I go off and say that something is what God is calling us to. In fact, I would say the role of a spiritual leader is less about declaring God's will and more about helping others experience the voice of God themselves. The role of a good spiritual leader is to help other people have that moment with God where they can kind of crack open the voice of God in their own hearts and experience that life themselves. The third pattern that we see in this passage is sometimes we see people go on the attack. Look at verse 28. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. There's a common phrase that's used to describe the tactics that we sometimes see abusive people employ. It's the acronym DARVO, D-A-R-V-O. And it stands for deny, accuse, reverse, victim, and offender. It's a method of gaslighting somebody where the victim is kind of fed a confusing narrative and they get confused and start to wonder, well, gee, maybe, I, maybe I'm the one in the wrong. That's what can happen sometimes. And the the uh, offender actually starts to kind of twist the narrative to say, no, look at these people coming after me all the time. We can see something similar to that here. The leaders are saying to the blind men, look, we're the true followers of God. You're following this, you know, nutso Jesus. We're the true followers of God because we follow Moses. You're the one causing problems, not us. They're trying to switch around, like, who's actually being hurt here as they literally insult this guy. This is where pretty soon the victim can start to think, well, maybe, maybe I am in the wrong here. Maybe I shouldn't have said that or done that or been there. They've got so much on their plate. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm the problem. Now, fortunately, it doesn't work for the man who was healed. 
He doesn't let those Pharisees pull the wool over his eyes. He gets a little cheeky with them. He says in verse 30, the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so the Pharisees' insults bounce off of him. Why is that? Well, it's because this guy had had an encounter with Jesus. He knows the real thing now. He's able to sniff out some sort of, you know, he can sniff out the fake pretenders now. And so it doesn't have the effect on him that it may have otherwise. And then the fourth and final one I was going to mention is simply shunning. Verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now, I don't have to spend a lot of time here. It's pretty straightforward. Some of you here know the feeling of the, the text messages to go silent, the phone calls to go away or not be returned, the relationships to dry up because you're no longer part of a particular community. That, look, that whole nasty list of stuff that I just mentioned, that I just unpacked, I'm sure that it hit somebody. I'm I just know enough of the stories here in the room, and I know that I could probably think of a person for each one. Um, and so now you're just kind of sitting there with it. You're like, yeah, that happened to me. What am I supposed to do with this now, Phil? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a look again at the text and see what Jesus does here. Verses 6 and 7. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. It's important for us to notice that John provides the translation of this pool. The pool of Siloam, which means sent. The fact that he translates the word for us should alert us to the fact that it's important, that there's something there that he wants us to see. It's the pool of sent. Why does that matter? It matters because over 20 times in the book of John, Jesus describes himself as having been sent by God. And so when Jesus tells this man to wash in the pool of scent, he's essentially saying, I am the source of your healing, not this pool. I love that image that for someone who's been worn down for so long like this guy had been, he's healed by washing in the waters of the scent one. Jesus is the one who disrupts the lies and replaces them with truth. And I think that's pretty cool. But it's not the only significance to this word sent. Because Jesus isn't the only one who is sent in the book of John. In chapter 20, verse 21, we find out Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Just as Jesus was sent on a mission, so also Jesus' followers are sent on a mission too. This means that when Jesus has this man wash in the pool of scent, it's, it's not just his healing service that we're looking at. We're watching his commissioning service too. You are now sent. When we see this man get healed by Jesus, it's, it's also him getting ordained by Jesus. I have a purpose for you, he says. This isn't just, it's not just Jesus wiping away the years of the lies. He's replacing those years with a mission, with a purpose. And here's what that means. People may have dropped you, but Jesus never did. Your story with God may have felt over, but it isn't. Jesus wants to wash you and send you. 
If there's anything I hope comes from this message today, it's that people who have experienced some of the things that we've talked about would remember this. Jesus' truth and love outshines the darkness of toxic lies and leaders. When I was in college, I was in a music team. We traveled for the school, and so we'd go different places, and we'd perform at churches, and, and we would stay in a host family of somebody that went to the church. They would house us for the night or whatever. And um, this is a season of my life where I was trying to discern the future. I mean, it's college, right? That's often what happens. And so I was trying to discern the future and trying to decide if I was supposed to go into ordained pastoral ministry or not. And I happened to get in the host home, and the guy's house was the guy who... Who's, who's the head of the ordination board, the ordination council in my, in, in my district at the time. And, and I thought, well, this is perfect. I can, I can talk to him and maybe he'll have some insights or some wisdom for me. And I went to him and I said, hey, you know, I'm kind of praying through, kind of trying to discern. I've got kind of these options in my life and I kind of got these. But I'm kind of wondering maybe God is calling me to be ordained. And you know what he said? His response wasn't very gracious. He said to me, well, ministry isn't for the faint of heart. You can't be on the fence about it. You can't be waffling back and forth on this. And that was the, that was the end of it. <laughs> kind of shut the conversation down with me. Look, this is a minor example. This isn't, this isn't an example of trauma or anything in my life. In fact, I was kind of like, whatever, dude. You know, I, didn't, I just was like, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't really mess me up. But... It also shows how easily a few careless words can potentially do damage. I mean, it probably lasted 15 seconds. It could have, could have been bigger than that, though. God got a hold of me anyway. I mean, rest is history. Here we are. But my point is that no leader has the power to keep you from the center of God's will. No institution can ruin the goodness of God's grace. No narcissist can outshine the splendor of God's love. Jesus invites us to the pool of scent. No matter what our past looks like, God isn't done with you. Just come wash in the waters that come and be cleansed by me and come and be given new life and new purpose. Now, I haven't mentioned the irony of the fact that I am a religious leader preaching on the abuses of religious leaders to people who have been hurt by religious leaders. There's something weird about that, right? But, you know, the temptation at this point, in fact, I had it in my sermon at one point, I took it out. Because the temptation would be for me to turn around and say, now let me just tell you about all the ways we're not like this at Table Church. Listen, there's no such thing as a perfect church governance structure. There's better ones than others. But they can be manipulated. There's no way to ensure 100% that this kind of thing never happens anywhere ever, ever again. And so my goal here isn't to turn around and say, look, we're not like that, because the truth is, I don't think we're like that, but me simply saying it to you is meaningless. The only thing that matters is, the only defense I can give is our actions over time. That's the only thing that really has currency in this particular discussion, doesn't it? And so I'm not interested in trying to persuade you, you know, with my words. The only thing I can do is authentic love over time. That's all we have to offer. And ultimately, that's all that matters. My only goal is to say this. Just like Jesus restores the blind man to health and purpose, Jesus can do that for anybody that has church hurt. Jesus is infinitely greater than the fallen people that say they represent him. And so the challenge for us this is this. Are you willing to be washed? 
Jesus tells this man, this man who had been told his whole life that it's his fault to go and wash in the pool of scent. And once he does this, the man is now healed and he's able to face head on all the junk that the Pharisees are about to throw at him just a few minutes after. It's because despite everything he'd been through, he had encountered Jesus. Something had happened. He knew that, hey, with all of this wacky stuff going on, I know that that man, he's the real deal. To wash means to say yes to God, and I'm ready to put that nasty stuff behind me, Lord, to step into a new life with Jesus. And so look, I want to embody this today. We, we, didn't, we don't have any pools. That, we're not going to wash any pools or anything like that. Um, but we did the next best thing. Hopefully it's not too cheesy. We got some hand sanitizer stations. And they're uh, in the back here uh, next to the exits. And I just wonder. I, I mean, I don't wonder. I know that for some of us here, this particular topic is, is real. Okay? Um, and I just wonder if you'd be willing to go wash and let Jesus wash you. And to be reminded of the fact that he's not done with you. That he asked this man to go wash in the pool of scent. And that that alone has so much to say about who God is and what he wants to do in your life still. The point here is that just as Jesus asked this man to wash in the pool of scent, I'd like to ask anyone here who's been fed the lies that we've talked about today, if you're ready to let Jesus wash that off of you and send you, would you come and would you do that? in this kind of symbolic but significant way. If you're ready to step out of the old and into the new, to put the past behind you and allow Jesus to heal you today, I want to invite you to do that. And so when you go back there, you're going to see the hand sanitizer, of course, but there's also a purple ribbon lying on the, on the tables. We're coming up on Easter. You might notice sometimes at Easter you see like purple draped around the cross or something like that. Purple is the color of royalty. It's the color of a king. And what, we, what we're saying is that Jesus is the king who reigns above all that garbage. He's the one that can take anything that has happened into our lives. And because he is the one who is over all, he can turn it around. Look, we're not trying to erase your past as though it didn't happen. We're trying to redeem it because God wants to take that yucky stuff and actually use it to make you into a person who can, who can do more than you could have otherwise for his goodness and love. And so if that's where you're at, um, I want to invite you to do it as the band plays this song. I actually suspect that there will be more people. You won't be the only one. I think there might be more than, than you think. And, um, and I hope that it can be a moment of healing for all of us here who have gone through some of these really, really difficult things. Okay? Jesus calls you to wash in the pool of scent. He is the one who can wipe you clean, and he is the one who gives you purpose. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, I'm a, I'm a religious leader, right? I'm a pastor. Um, and so that's, that's why I kind of want to, Lord, if you could in your kind of sovereignty deflect off of me and onto you, Lord, that these words wouldn't be me speaking them, but you speaking them. Lord, that the, just simply what you do in the text would be what jumps out and what sticks with us and what carries us. You said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. God, there's something here. There's something in that for somebody here today. There's somebody here today who needs to hear that and realize that that's about them too. And so God, would you do that? Would you make it real? Lord, for somebody here who maybe needs to, who's been carrying a heavy burden of bitterness, hurt, anger, unforgiveness, sadness, bewilderment, I don't know, God. 
maybe when they come and wash, Lord, that you would, that you would just slay that stuff and you'd free them, God. And that they would be able to walk out of here not, not simply having kind of let something go, but actually being made new. Jesus, thank you for being a God who, who's greater, shines brighter than any of the nasty, toxic lies or leaders that we might come, in, come across in our lives. And Lord, may we always keep our eyes fixed upon you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.